Part 3 of Chapter 3 of The Gospel of Life It is I who bring both death and life, the tragedy of euthanasia. At the other end of life's spectrum, men and women find themselves facing the mystery of death. Today, as a result of advances in medicine and in a cultural context frequently closed to the transcendent, the experience of dying is marked by new features. When the prevailing tendency is to value life only to the extent that it brings pleasure and well-being, suffering seems like an unbearable setback, something from which one must be freed at all costs. Death is considered senseless if it suddenly interrupts a life still open to a future of new and interesting experiences, but it becomes a rightful liberation once life is held to be no longer meaningful because it is filled with pain and inexorably doomed to even greater suffering. Furthermore, when he denies or neglects his fundamental relationship to God, man thinks he is his own rule and measure, with the right to demand that society should guarantee him the ways and means of deciding what to do with his life in full and complete autonomy, it is especially people in the developed countries who act in this way. They feel encouraged to do so also by the constant progress of medicine and its ever more advanced techniques. By using highly sophisticated systems and equipment, science and medical practice today are able not only to attend to cases formerly considered untreatable and to reduce or eliminate pain, but also to sustain and prolong life even in situations of extreme frailty. To resuscitate artificially patients whose basic biological functions have undergone sudden collapse. And to use special procedures to make organs available for transplanting. In this context, the temptation grows to have recourse to euthanasia. That is to take control of death and bring it about before its time quote-unquote, gently ending one's own life or the life of others. In reality, what might seem logical and humane when looked at more closely is seen to be senseless and inhumane. Here we are faced with one of the more alarming symptoms of the culture of death, which is advancing above all in prosperous societies, marked by an attitude of excessive preoccupation with efficiency, and which sees the growing number of elderly and disabled people as intolerable and too burdensome. These people are very often isolated by their families and by society, which are organized almost exclusively on the basis of criteria of productive efficiency, according to which a hopelessly impaired life no longer has any value. For a correct moral judgment on euthanasia in the first place, a clear definition is required. Euthanasia, in the strict sense, is understood to be an action or omission which of itself and by intention causes death, with the purpose of eliminating all suffering. Euthanasia's terms of reference, therefore, are to be found in the intention of the will and in the methods used. Euthanasia must be distinguished from the decision to forego so-called aggressive medical treatment. In other words, medical procedures which no longer correspond to the real situation of the patient, either because they are by now disproportionate to any expected results, 
or because they impose an excessive burden on the patient and his family. In such situations, when death is clearly imminent and inevitable, one can, in conscience, refuse forms of treatment that would only secure a precarious and burdensome prolongation of life, so long as the normal care due to the sick person in similar cases is not interrupted. Certainly, there is a moral obligation to care for oneself and to allow oneself to be cared for, but this duty must take account of concrete circumstances. It needs to be determined whether the means of treatment available are objectively proportionate to the prospects for improvement. To forego extraordinary or disproportionate means is not the equivalent of suicide or euthanasia. It rather expresses acceptance of the human condition in the face of death. In modern medicine, increased attention is being given to what are called methods of palliative care, which seek to make suffering more bearable in the final stages of illness and to ensure that the patient is supported and accompanied in his or her ordeal. Among the questions which arise in this context is that of the licitness of using various types of painkillers and sedatives for relieving the patient's pain when this involves the risk of shortening life. While praise may be due to the person who voluntarily accepts suffering by foregoing treatment with painkillers in order to remain fully lucid and, if a believer, to share consciously in the Lord's passion, such heroic behavior cannot be considered the duty of everyone. Pius XII affirmed that it is licit to relieve pain by narcotics, even when the result is decreased consciousness and a shortening of life if no other means exist, and if, in the given circumstances, this does not prevent the carrying out of other religious and moral duties. In such a case, death is not willed or sought, even though for reasonable motives one runs the risk of it. There is simply a desire to ease pain effectively by using the analgesics with which medicine provides. All the same, it is not right to deprive the dying person of consciousness without a serious reason. As they approach death, people ought to be able to satisfy their moral and family duties. And above all, they ought to be able to prepare in a fully conscious way for their definitive meeting with God. Taking into account these distinctions, in harmony with the magisterium of my predecessors, and in communion with the bishops of the Catholic Church, I confirm that euthanasia is a grave violation of the law of God, since it is the deliberate and morally unacceptable killing of a human person. This doctrine is based upon the natural law and upon the written word of God, is transmitted by the church's tradition, and taught by the ordinary and universal magisterium. Depending on the circumstances, this practice involves the malice proper to suicide or murder. Suicide is always as morally objectionable as murder. The church's tradition has always rejected it as a gravely evil choice, even though a certain psychological, cultural, and social conditioning may induce a person to carry out an action which so radically contradicts the innate inclination to life, thus lessening and removing subjective responsibility. Suicide, when viewed objectively, is a gravely immoral act. In fact, it involves the rejection of love of self and the renunciation of the obligation of justice and charity towards one's neighbor, towards the communities of which one belongs, and towards society as a whole. 
In its deepest reality, suicide represents a rejection of God's absolute sovereignty over life and death, as proclaimed in the prayer of the ancient sage of Israel. You have power over life and death. You lead men down to the gates of Hades and back again. To concur with the intention of another person to commit suicide and to help in carrying it out through so-called assisted suicide means to cooperate in and at times to be the actual perpetrator of an injustice which can never be excused, even if it is requested. In a remarkably relevant passage, St. Augustine writes that, quote, it is never licit to kill another, even if he should wish it. Indeed, if he requests it because, hanging between life and death, he begs for help in freeing the soul, struggling against the bonds of the body, and longing to be released. Nor is it licit even when a sick person is no longer able to live. Unquote. Even when not motivated by a selfish refusal to be burdened with the life of someone who is suffering, euthanasia must be called a false mercy, and indeed a disturbing perversion of mercy. True compassion leads to sharing another's pain. It does not kill the person whose suffering we cannot bear. Moreover, the act of euthanasia appears all the more perverse if it is carried out by those like relatives who are supposed to treat a family member with patience and love, or by those such as doctors who, by virtue of their specific profession, are supposed to care for the sick person even in the most painful terminal stages. The choice of euthanasia becomes more serious when it takes the form of a murder committed by others on a person who has in no way requested it and who has never consented to it. The height of arbitrariness and injustice is reached when certain people, such as physicians or legislators, arrogate to themselves the power to decide who ought to live and who ought to die. Once again, we find ourselves before the temptation of Eden to become like God, who knows good and evil. God alone has the power over life and death. It is I who bring both life and death. Deuteronomy 2 Kings 1 Samuel. But he only exercises this power in accordance with a plan of wisdom and love. When a man usurps this power, being enslaved by a foolish and selfish way of thinking, he inevitably uses it for injustice and death. Thus, the life of the person who is weak is put into the hands of the one who is strong. In society, the sense of justice is lost, and mutual trust, the basis of every authentic interpersonal relationship, is undermined at its root. Quite different from this is the way of love and true mercy, which our common humanity calls for, and upon which faith in Christ the Redeemer, who died and rose again, sheds ever new light. The request which arises from the human heart in the supreme confrontation with suffering and death, especially when faced with the temptation to give up in utter desperation, is above all a request for companionship, sympathy, and support in the time of trial. It is a plea for help to keep on hoping when all human hopes fail. As the Second Vatican Council reminds us, it is in the face of death that the riddle of human existence becomes most acute and yet man rightly follows the intuition of his heart when he abhors and repudiates the absolute ruin and total disappearance of his own person. Man rebels against death because he bears in himself an eternal seed which cannot be reduced to mere matter. 
This natural aversion to death and this incipient hope of immortality are illumined and brought to fulfillment by Christian faith, which both promises and offers a share in the victory of the risen Christ. It is the victory of the one who, by his redemptive death, has set man free from death, the wages of sin, and has given him the spirit, the pledge of resurrection and of life. The certainty of future immortality and hope in the promised resurrection cast new light on the mystery of suffering and death and fill the believer with an extraordinary capacity to trust fully in the plan of God. The Apostle Paul expressed this newness in terms of belonging completely to the Lord who embraces every human condition. None of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Dying to the Lord means experiencing one's death as the supreme act of obedience to the Father, being ready to meet death at the hour willed and chosen by Him, which can only mean when one's earthly pilgrimage is completed. Living to the Lord also means recognizing that suffering, while still an evil and a trial in itself, can always become a source of good. It becomes such if it is experienced for love and with love through sharing by God's gracious gift and one's own personal and free choice in the suffering of Christ crucified. In this way, the person who lives his suffering in the Lord grows more fully conformed to him and more closely associated with his redemptive work on behalf of the church and humanity. This was the experience of St. Paul, which every person who suffers is called to relive. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Next time, part four of chapter three.